This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Good morning. If you would, please remain standing for the reading of Scripture as we turn back to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter in chapter 1. Page 1014 in the, the Black Pew Bibles there. We've been making our way through the book of 1 Peter, and the apostle writes to the first century Christians beginning to feel the heat of social pressure and persecution. And we come to a new section this morning, beginning at verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we... We come into your presence and um, admit, God, the level of distraction in life makes it hard, Lord, to come into that glorious sense of your presence, of your utter holiness. But we would ask, God, humbly that you would, in your mercy towards us who are gathered and those who would listen, Lord, afar, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would cause your spirit to enlighten us and to lead us and to inform us and to transform us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. One of the things we saw earlier in this chapter was that promises have power. They have motivational, hope-creating and hope-sustaining power, uh, the promise of a significant upcoming pay raise, for example, keeps somebody on the job, <laughs> keeps them hopeful, or maybe the promise of a medical breakthrough gives hope to someone with a, a terminal diagnosis. Promises have power. God's promises have greater power because, unlike other things, they're absolutely sure. They are absolutely certain. They're real. And faith, which is a gift of God's Spirit, our faith, empowered and energized by the Holy Spirit, in this journey together, lays hold of God's promises and leans upon them, rests upon them, and is helped to endure through the trials of this life as we make our way to our inheritance. Promises have power like that. I was reading a book that it was written by a non-Christian uh, who dabbles in philosophy, and 
he was writing a book about hope, so I thought it was interesting. He says, human beings need to organize their lives into a story. That gives us hope. And I thought, well, that's true as, as far as it goes, but it kind of depends on how the story ends. And it depends on whether or not that story is the story, is the real story, the reality. Well, that is what we believe this book reveals to us, you see. And that's what sustains us, right? We walk by faith, knowing the end of the story, as it were. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused all that privilege and power and wealth of what it meant to be a prince in Egypt. Why? He was looking to the reward. He knew the end of the story. And he trusted in what had been revealed to him. Well, what Peter's been doing in chapter 1 for these first 12 verses, in a sense, is rehearsing the great story of salvation, of redemption. And now, he, after exulting in God and praising Him for this, he turns in verse 13 to what should be our response, their response to this glorious Story, the response of faith. That's why verse 13 begins, Therefore, you see, therefore, in light of what God has done for us, therefore, here is how you ought to respond. And really, this reaches all the way back to verse 1. Since God chose you, and since God the Holy Spirit sanctified you, since you've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, since God caused you to be born again to a living hope in connection with the resurrection of Christ, since you have a glorious imperishable inheritance that's being kept safe for you, and since you yourself are being guarded by the power of God through faith for that inheritance, and since God refines and purifies your faith in your trials, which only serves to prove the genuineness of your faith and therefore can produce a joy that's inexpressible and glorious. And since your salvation is such a privilege that the prophets of old and angels even long to understand it, therefore, and then he says two things. There are only two imperatives. The next three verses. Therefore, fix your hope firmly on the grace to be brought to you and be holy. <laughs> Those are the only two imperatives. I know other translations have several, but we'll, we'll explain that. And what is this therefore pivot? If we were to categorize it, what is it? It's worship. It is worship. Worship, remember, is rooted in remembrance and response. We gather every Lord's Day uh, as a perpetual sign in remembrance of the resurrection, the first day of the week. That's why we gather, you see. And we gather to respond. Remember the grace having been brought to you, therefore remember the grace to be brought to you. Respond, be holy. Be holy, even as he is holy. Now, be holy is actually the main verb 
of this whole next section and even beyond. And the reason I say that, say, how do, why do you say that's the main one of these two? Because everything else he writes later is all about holy behavior in the household and in relation to the world and so forth. So that's the main verb of what we're looking at, just these three verses. But, beloved, the order, the order here is a lesson in itself. And it's maybe the most important thing you'll get out of this today to remember this. The order is absolutely essential. Hope first, then be holy. <laughs> to reverse these is disastrous. It is not the gospel. It is not the message of Scripture. It is not the Christian faith. It is not Christianity. Christianity, the Christian faith, is the grace of God first. Therefore, be holy. It has always been that way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall not have any other gods before me, you see. It's always grace first. Hope, then be holy. In what you know about God and what he's done for you, what you believe he is doing for you and what you trust he will do for you. In light of those things, be holy. Be holy. So what we're going to do this morning, the rest of our time, is just think about those two imperatives. First of all, and the order, fix your hope. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. So Peter begins and he says, therefore, in verse 13, again, I just mentioned that. Peter reminds us that our God has already done tremendous things for us in Christ, right? He's done tremendous things because of his grace and his love. And what Peter says now, when he says, therefore, he says, now I want you to focus on what he's promised you in the future, the grace to be brought to you. Fix your hope completely upon that. Not 90% of it, all of it. Fix all your hope completely, your confidence on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's talking about here is the second coming. The epiphania, the, 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 the revelation of the glory of who Jesus Christ is when he comes to be marveled at with his holy angels and praised and brings judgment. He says, fix your hope fully on that. And the way you can do that is by looking back. That's the therefore, remembering already how much grace he's done, uh, giving you in the past. This massive amount of grace that he's already given to you. And then look forward based on having looked back and trust that what God has said about the future is just as firm, as solid as the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the past. You see, And that's what he's saying. This is the logic of Scripture. It's the logic of the Bible. It's the logic of the apostles. It was the same logic of the Apostle Paul in so many places. Just for one example, in Romans 8, 32, Paul makes this astounding statement. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him or along with him graciously give us all things. What is Paul saying there? Well, that verse has two parts there. There is the foundation, and then there is the promise. What is the foundation? It's the basis of the promise. What's the foundation? God did not spare his own son. <laughs> Think of that. 
And the logic of grace, the logic of heaven is this. If this is true, then God will surely give everything needed, everything promised for your salvation to those for whom he has already given his own son. To be what? To be given over to suffer the wrath of God the Father for your sins. To take upon himself your guilt and your condemnation, you see. So surely, if he gave his son foundation to that end for you, promise he will not withhold. He will not withhold whatever is needed for the Christian life, whatever is needed and whatever is promised that he has given to us in the gospel regarding things to come. So, the basis of that is God's trustworthiness, His unchanging nature. The only thing you need to be sure of is that you actually have received the foundation so that these promises apply to you as well. He gave His Son. Have you received His Son? Have you received His Son through faith? Have you repented of your sin and turned to Him and placed your faith and hope in His Son? All right, so someone hears this and says, okay, I get it. I'm I'm getting this message. I am to hope first. I am to think of what God's done in the past so I can look forward to the future, and that gives me hope. I get that. That's first, and then I can begin to live a, a holy life. But how do I do what he says here? He says to fix my hope completely. <laughs> fix it. Fasten it. Completely on that future grace, that hope that is to be brought to me, that grace to be brought to me in the future. Well, that's, that's part of why it's important to, to, to think about how this is translated because the imperative there is fix your hope completely. That's the command. And like the NIV, I think, and, and maybe other translations translate these others as commands, but they're not. They're participles that describe the means. They're instrumental participles. In other words, fix your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. How? By preparing your minds for action. By being sober-minded, you see. And the first one's the past tense. Having prepared your minds for action, fix your hope completely. Uh, Being sober, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you, you see. So the first one is by preparing your minds for action. Now, uh, somewhat loose translation because the literal translation, which was followed by the King James, is a phrase that most of us would never, you know, understand. It it, it really literally is, is by having girded the loins of your mind. Okay, wow, what does that mean? (laughs) By having girded the loins of my mind. Well, you know, you understand that uh, in those days, uh, people, including men, didn't wear slacks. They wore long flowing robes, even as they do in parts of uh, the Middle East today. And when they were about to work or to do anything strenuous, uh, when they were about to enter into battle, the Roman soldiers would do this. They would take the corners of this flowing robe and they would tuck it in, gird it in to their belts, you see. And so he's saying, prepare your minds for action. And that's so a loose translation because that's what he, it's, it's, it's trying, that's the imagery that's coming across here. 
Um, in other words, the battle for your hope begins in your mind. It begins in your thought life. It's a battle. Gird up your mind and get it ready for action to engage in this struggle, to think rightly, to be able to fix your hope, not on earthly things, but on the things to, to come. Paul uses the same um, verbal idea, and it's translated this way in Ephesians chapter 6, in that section on the spiritual battle and putting on the full armor of God. In verse 14, he says, Stand therefore, in other words, hold your ground, how? Having fastened on the belt of truth, having girded on that belt, tucked into the belt, what? Truth. Truth, and I'm sure that's in part what Peter is getting to as well. Engage your mind. Uh, the battle begins with your thoughts, and you, and you need to fill your mind with the truth. This way of thinking uh, requires discipline. It requires repetition. It re requires effort. It doesn't just happen automatically. So hope begins on the thought level, on the level of your thinking. And there's a battle constantly going on for your mind if you haven't noticed already <laughs> there's a battle going on for your mind i was battling sitting in the front row were you <laughs> focus why am i here <laughs> uh, there's always a battle going on for your mind but in a larger sense to fill the horizon of your thoughts and expectations with things that aren't as sure as god's blessed truth you see and so you lose hope. And Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The battle begins there, doesn't it? It begins in our thought life. If there's anything I could share with you after 40 years in the Lord is that it all starts right here and keep on it. And when those thoughts come in that try and skirt you to the left or the right or they're absolutely sinful, just say, judge them in your mind. Say, Lord, that's wrong. Help me. And, and begin to engage rather than just be carried around by the wind that's blowing in your minds. Um, that old saying of computer program programmers, G-I-G-O, Gigo, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> the data doesn't lie. It's just whatever you put in is what's going to come out, you know. Uh, so get your mind in gear, beloved. Keep your mind engaged, you know. Listen, endless news feeds don't help because News feeds are what? 99% bad. Why? Because if it bleeds, it leads so that people what? Will advertise with them. And so you, don't, you, you really don't know what's going on in the whole world. Only God knows. And so endless news feeds that get your inners just burning, it doesn't help fix your hope completely. Um, Completely. How much? Completely. On what? The grace to be brought to you uh, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's needed is what? Not, not more texts and emails that interrupt us. What, what's needed is 
unbroken periods of reflection on truth. Long enough to marinate in it so that the horizon of our outlook isn't dominated by little bits of bad news and other things that keep coming. But that takes, that takes discipline, right? And, and that's why we exist, right? We come together an hour and a half a week to, to fix our hope completely on the truth. Amen? And that's how it works, you know. But it's an exercise, and sometimes if we don't do it, God has a way of getting us to the point where we will. My favorite example of that is, uh, apart from my own pains and stuff, is this t- the tremendous story of how the, uh, the, 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 the book, The Saints Everlasting Rest, was written by Richard Baxter, that Baptist pastor uh, in the Puritan era. It's been a long time since I shared this, so I know many of you don't know this, but Richard Baxter wrote this book called The Saints Everlasting Rest. It was a reflection on the glories of heaven and, you know, the grace to be brought to us. And yeah, at, at the beginning, he explains the circumstances under which uh, he wrote the book. He says, being in my quarters far from home, he wasn't at home, he was traveling, cast into extreme languishing by the sudden loss of about a gallon of blood, after many years foregoing weakness and having no acquaintance about me or, nor any books but my Bible, he was not at home, and living in continual expectation of death, I bent my thoughts on my everlasting rest. <laughs> And he says, this is how he did it. He says, and because my, mem- my memory through extreme weakness was imperfect. Yeah, sure, you were also getting old. Come on. He says, <laughs> like me, right? <laughs> he says, I took my pen and began to draw up my own funeral sermon. And some helps for my own meditations of heaven to sweeten both the rest of my life, however long that would be, and my death. In this condition, God was pleased to continue me about five months. <laughs> the Lord kept them five months reflecting on the saints' everlasting rest. He says, I was unable to do anything else, and so I went on with this work. It was written, he says, as it were, with one foot in the grave by a man that was between the living and the dead. And I'm only going to read how the book begins, it's a modern paraphrase of it, because that old English gets too cumbersome here. He says, he's, he pictures himself now in, in the inheritance, okay? And he says, from heaven's height, the soul surveys the promised land. And looking back on earth, the soul views the dreary wilderness through which it passed. To stand on Mount Memory, comparing heaven with earth, fills the soul with unimaginable gratitude and makes it exclaim, is this the inheritance that costs so much as the blood of Christ? No wonder, oh, blessed price, is this the result of believing? Have the gales of grace blown me into such a harbor? Is this where Christ was so eager to bring me? Oh, praise the Lord. Is this the glory of which the scriptures spoke and of which ministers preached so much? I see the gospel is indeed good news. Are all my troubles, Satan's temptations, the world's scorns and jeers come to this? Oh, vile nature that resisted so much and so long, such a blessing, unworthy soul. Is this the place you came to so unwillingly? 
Was duty so tiresome? Was the world too good to lose? Could you not leave all, deny all, and suffer anything for this? Were you loath to die, to come to this? Oh, false heart, you had almost betrayed me to eternal flames and lost me this glory. Are you not ashamed now, my soul, that you ever questioned that love which brought you here? Although I don't know that we'll feel shame in heaven. Are you not sorry that you ever quenched his spirit's prompting or misinterpreted, and here we go, his providences, or complained about the narrow road that brought you to such a destination? Written by a man with one foot in the grave over a five-month period of intense what? Preparing the mind, fixing the mind fully on the hope to be brought to him. The second way that we are helped in fixing our hope is, he says, by being sober-minded. Sober, the term means self-control or temperate, but of course, He's not talking about temperance with alcohol. He's talking about avoiding spiritual drunkenness. He's saying you need to be sober in your thinking. There's a way of thinking. It's very connected to the first thing. Very th- a way of thinking and living that makes us dull. Dull to the realities of God and spiritual realities and spiritual truths. And we can become anesthetized by the attractions of the world like a, like a drunk. And like a drunk, our, our, our judgment gets clouded and our, our, our reflexes slow down. We, be, we, are, we can be dulled into a spiritual drowsiness and we begin to lose sight of the reality of what? The second coming of Jesus Christ. Because we become dulled. We're not sober-minded. We're preoccupied with other things, preoccupied with the cares of this world or the entertainment of this world. And all this diminishes our hope, and so we become spiritually dull. You ever been there? Dull in the sense of the weightiness of the reality of eternity. It just seems so distant because the immediate is what dominates, right? The tyranny of the urgent. The moment, the immediate. Well, that happens to all of us. We just don't want to get lulled into a state where we stay there, beloved. I mean, this is an up and down thing, right? We, we, th- these aren't switches you turn on and off, right? There's a gradation here, a scale. And so it's a matter of, of being sober-minded, not filled with the cares of this world. And you know what you are when everything you think about has to do with the here and now. And you, and you invest so much of yourself in the immediate. Speaking of the Old Testament people of God, God spoke to the prophet Hosea. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to this amazing statement. In Hosea 8.14, the prophet says, Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. <laughs> there you go. You know you've forgotten your maker when, when you're just building your earthly palaces all the time. The palace of success, the palace of wealth, the palace of you, you name it. Israel forgot. What have they been doing, Lord? Building palaces. Things where thieves can break in and steal and 
moth and rust can destroy, not storing up for themselves treasures that last into eternity. And so to be hope-filled people, right, we need to what? We need to be mentally fit, <laughs> mentally engaged as a habit, as a matter of habit, and hopefully not necessary to the degree of poor Richard Baxter, five months on your back, right? But nevertheless, uh, mentally engaged and sp- mentally sober, not dulled to spiritual reality, disentangling ourselves to some, th- to some degree from life's affairs so they don't dull us. We have to all eat, we have to work, we have to do things, but we can't be dominated by them. And you know what? You know exactly what your palaces are. I don't need to list the options. <laughs> so it all starts how? Fix your hope. Then be holy. So hope first. Then second, what? Be holy. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Such grace as the things that uh, Baxter reflected on. I mean, you would have to go look at them yourself, Revelation 21 and so forth. What's coming in the end? And then he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your, passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also, and here's the second command, be holy in all your conduct. See? To be holy, we're just talking on the human level here, beloved. To be holy is to separate oneself from what is evil, unrighteous, and contrary to God's moral will. Let me say it again. It is to, is to separate yourself. Separate yourself from what is evil, what is unrighteous, and contrary to God's moral will. Now, the Bible says that God alone is eternally, unchangingly, completely intrinsically holy, right? He alone is holy in that sense. He is utterly, completely separate from the creation where there is sin. He has no part in it because he is the creator. He is transcendent. And indeed, the, we sang the song of the, of the angels that surround the, te- the throne of God who sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. But holiness is more than God's separateness as creator. It is rooted in that because certainly as the angels sing holy, 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 they don't only mean separate, separate, separate. There's something more to this, isn't there? That in his separateness, in his being transcended, he is utterly pure, he is utterly righteous, uh, and so forth. And so we are to be holy in our behavior, he says, in all your conduct. There's that word that he uses several times, your lifestyle. In every area of your life, be like him. Now you notice the the parallels with Israel and the people of God in the new covenant continue, right? Just as Israel was chosen, we are chosen. Just as they became pilgrims, we are pilgrims. Just as they had an inheritance, the promised land, we have an inheritance. Just as they were set free from bondage, we've been set free from bondage. Just as they were told, be holy now. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. We also, you see, are told to be holy. And so the parallels continue. And there are four aspects to this call to holiness and the first one is the manner he says we are to be holy as God's obedient 
children. What a beautiful tag on. That needs to be there. (laughs) As obedient children, God's children. What's that do? That reminds his readers and you and me that we are indeed the children of God, that we have been born again into a family. Remember verse 3. And then down below, he'll say the same in verse 23. Since you have been born again, God has birthed you into his family. And so you are to be holy as children obey their father, as children are called to reflect their father. There's the old saying, like father, like son. And so it is to be. In other words, this is more than some sort of heavy strapped on law. There is an expectation that this will be the result of the new birth. You have been born into a family. You will resemble the family because you've been given the power of the Spirit who is the one who enables you to walk, walk in righteousness. And so this is not to be seen as a huge burden as much as a reflection of what God has done in your adoption. It flows freely in the New Testament, right? Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, therefore, be imitators of God. You say, what a standard. Be imitators of God as obedient children. Because you are a child of God, you see. And it's not only a basis for doing it, but it's the manner in which you can do it. So be reminded that you have the potential because you've been born into a spiritual family. And if there's some of you, you maybe think, I have always struggled with this whole idea of trying to even begin to change my views, my outlook. I don't, I feel powerless. Are you in the family? Christianity is a life resulting from the actions of God. Have you been born again? Very fundamental question, but it's a real one. And it behooves you to be honest with yourself about it. Because his, he stands, the Father, with his arms open. And he says, come. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So, so the first one is the manner, as obedient children. The second is the means, by not being conformed. Once again, that is an a, a instrumental participle, not a, an, a command, not an imperative. By not being conformed. To What? By not being conformed uh, to the passions of your former ignorance. Uh, In other words, this new life will, will, will be shaped differently. The idea of conforming is being pressed into a mold. You used to be pressed by certain things, your ignorance, he calls. And now you are to be compressed into a different mold, which comes from the Word and the Holy Spirit. The Christian life has to look different than the life before. All believers, including yourself, we were all dominated. We were pushed around by passions, by the passions and lusts of our sins and our thoughts, and they controlled our behavior. Uh, That's what Tom read from Romans chapter 6. That's where we were, but something changed, something dramatic took place. Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 4, looking back and, and telling them that it's time to leave it behind. He says that, in verse, three, in verse 2, excuse, excuse me, he says of chapter 4, uh, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but now it's time for what? To live for the will of God. Notice verse 3, for the time that is past. That's before you were born again. 
The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That was your past. And with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery right now. But you can't. Why not? Because that was your past, you see. And you've been born into a new life. You're not ignorant anymore. And what was ignorant? What is, what is this ignorance referring to? It points back again to their pre-Christian uh, mind, their pre-Christian outlook. And it was true of everyone. We did what we did because we were ignorant. We were ignorant of what? Spiritual truth. The story, the true narrative of what's happening in the world. We were ignorant of sin and what it really does, it's ruin. We were ignorant of the fact that there is a genuine judgment and condemnation coming for all who are outside of God's mercy and grace. And we were ignorant of what? We were ignorant of the unbelievable grace of God and what he's done to resolve all this, to reconcile you, to bring you peace and forgiveness merely by faith in your heart, you see. We were ignorant of all that. And so our passions simply pushed us around, and we submitted to them, but you no, you no longer, you are not to be compressed by them anymore. Why? Because though sin continues to dwell in you, it is no longer dominant over you. It, has, it does not have absolute authority over you any longer. As we like to say, sin is still resident in the Christian, but he's no longer president. He, you can say no. Why? Because you have been born again. You've died to sin, says Paul, and you are alive to Christ. And you have the Spirit's capacity to say no. So, sin continues to seek to push you around, beloved. And it keeps you from being holy now. And sin operates in the same way now as it did before, which is what? It preys on ignorance. Before, you were dominated by ignorance. And now it preys on your ignorance even as a Christian. That is, the less you know about what is real and what's coming, the more it can lie to you and confuse you and tell you it's better to live for the here than the then. But that's what? Preying on ignorance. But you know how the story ends, don't you? <laughs> and so don't let sin prey on ignorance Fix your mind. Fix your hope. Engage your thoughts, you see. Don't think and live as those who are ignorant of what God is truly doing. What's happening, you know? I was thinking about uh, the illustration that uh, C.S. Lewis uh, made, offered when he wrote, um, he wrote the book, The Weight of Glory. And in, in that, when I thought of this, this is exactly what I thought about. In there, he made the statement that came to my mind when I was preparing, and that is, he says, you know what? Our God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Meaning, too weak to desire what he's promised and think it's real. And so we settle for lesser things. If our desires were strong enough and rooted in faith, we would seek the things He's promised, and this is his illustration. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. He says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, 
because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a glorious holiday at the sea. And so he uses the imagery of mud pies and a glorious holiday at sea to, 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 to illustrate what? Give us a glimpse of what it means that you and I are t- far too easily pleased. God wants us to desire strongly what? the joys that are at his right hand, the joy that comes from being with God, knowing God, walking with God. See? Instead, we build palaces only to watch them burn down or be destroyed, taken away, lost, etc. So the manner, the means, and then thirdly, the pattern. He says you are to be holy as he who called you is holy. Again, Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God, right? As he who called you is holy. And how is God holy? He is, as somebody says, unremittingly good. What did Jesus say? There's only one who's good. God is unremittingly good. And so that's why he says, as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all, all your conduct. There is no sacred secular division. There is no Sunday holiness and then, you know, Monday unholiness. It is in all your conduct. This is worship. Worship is remembrance and response. And that's how Paul turns the corner in Romans chapter 12 when he comes to the end of that glorious, you know, 11 chapters on the gospel and its fulfillment also in the promises of Israel. Finally, chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, or I, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not an hour and a half on Sunday sacrifice. <laughs> A living sacrifice. It is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, all of life is worship. But, you know, a slight mention here, the reference there to calling as he who called you, it's important. I don't want to skip over it because, once again, it underscores what? Grace is first. Why should you be holy in all your life? Because He called you into this. And this is not a call like an invitation. This is he called you out of darkness, right? It is the the call of the Spirit working in your heart and bringing you to the Father, you see. And lastly, the ground for this call to be holy in verse 16. Why? In other words, the ground, the why, the basis. Since it is written. Because it is scripture, because God has revealed it. Be ye holy, for I am holy, and we are his children. Someone says, but isn't that from Leviticus? And then we just hear from Paul that we're not under the law, but we're under grace. We had it in our service. Yes, absolutely, beloved. We are in a covenant bond with this very same God. Our covenant is the eternal covenant, the greater covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood, the better sacrifice, the better temple, the better priest. But it is a bond with the same God, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, the more standards remain the same. The moral standards 
cross from covenant to covenant, from promise to fulfillment. Not in how they are written into the arrangement of the covenant with the details of, well, if you do this, then that, and if you don't do this, then that. None of that. Just the, the, the righteousness of God, the moral perfection of God remains the standard for us. So why should we be holy? Because you're the child of God, and He is holy, and it has been written. It's been written into God's revelation in Scripture. So let's just follow his logic as we finish. I think the logic of this whole passage is as important as the actual things he's saying in those two commands because this is important to, to remember as you read your Bible. Here's Peter's logic again. To live as God's chosen people in all our lifestyle, even in the midst of persecutions, we need to set our hope fully on God's promises by looking at the past first and then looking at the glorious future that lies ahead, know the story, remember the story that your life is written into. You are in that story. Know it and set your hope fully on that glorious future that lies ahead. And to do this, what do we do? We need to fight the battle for our mind. It begins in the thought life, and we need not to become drunk on the empty promises of the world so that our lives, our spiritual lives, and thinking are dulled because we, of all people, should know them to be lies because we know how the story ends. And so the implications are dozens, right? What are you thinking about all the time? How are you going to control what comes in your mind? What steps will you take? Your lifestyle will reveal whether you have the same priorities as your heavenly father or not. And what you believe about the future shapes what you decide and do in the present. All these are, are implications. But I end once again with the fact that promises have power. Promises have power. What you believe about tomorrow will affect how you live today. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He walked away from it all. Why? He was looking to the reward. Are you? He was. God has scripted into the story, by the way, helps helps to bring us back over and over. Every Sunday, again, is a celebration of the resurrection. Every Sunday is resurrection day. Easter is the high one, I think, we think, right? And so it is a perpetual sign to you and me. He rose from the dead. He's coming back. And the ordinances or sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper, they are perpetual signs again. When our minds and hearts get dulled by the world's cares or entertainments, they are perpetual signs to us, again, of the narrative, right? Paul says, regarding the Lord's Supper, he says, every time you eat and drink, right, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming, you say. And the signs are the language of the story in themselves. That's what they're meant to be.
So in a moment, we're going to bring ourselves to the Lord's Supper. Let's just pray and then worship the Lord. Then Tom will lead us through that time together.